Well, I originally asked this question when we began our study in the book of Philippians. So as we're closing our study in the book of Philippians, I thought it was appropriate to ask it again. But how do you encourage someone from afar? When you're not physically able to be with someone who is in need, someone who's struggling or suffering, how do you encourage them? My answer now is the same as it was then. You commend them to the grace of God. In every way, with every word, with every prayer, every encouragement, with every correction you need to utter, you commend them to the grace of God. There are many aspects to the grace of God. Our brother Zachary pointed out last week that the grace of God is what saves us. It is what sanctifies us. It is what secures us for the end. The grace of God, the unmerited favor of God, his powerful working on our behalf to rescue, redeem, and reserve us for heaven is what every believer needs every hour of their life. For every circumstance, whether it's joy or sorrow. The grace of God works in many different ways in the life of a believer. We talk about the means of grace often, meaning the way by which God gives grace to his people. The letter of Paul to the Philippians illustrates this truth, both through Paul's teaching as well as through his example. As we think back over the book, here are a number of those such means of grace. We see the grace of God at work in the lives of believers through prayer. Our prayer for others, as we saw Paul's prayer for the church at Philippi in chapter 1. When we cannot be at the side of our loved ones to care for them physically, the greatest tool that we have to avail ourselves is that of prayer. Prayer to the Lord of the universe, the Lord of the church, Jesus Christ. Prayer on their behalf, not merely for physical needs, but also for spiritual needs. Prayer that, as Paul said earlier, that their love would abound more and more, that they would approve the things that are excellent, that they would be pure and blameless before Christ, having been filled with the fruit of righteousness. Prayer for physical needs will always abound. However, our prayers for our brothers and sisters should never fall short of our desire to see them filled with the fruit of righteousness in Christ. God works through our prayers for others' needs and particularly for those things that cause anxiety. Again, anxiety is not something that we should be ashamed of. We all become anxious at times. But when we are anxious, we're commanded, we're taught to pray and to pray with thanksgiving. And the promise of God, as we saw in Philippians 4, is that he will give his peace, a peace which surpasses all understanding. And that peace will guard our hearts and minds in Christ. We see the grace of God at work through prayer. We also see the grace of God at work through partnership. Again, this letter was written from Paul to the church at Philippi precisely because of their partnership in the gospel. Chapter 1, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. They partnered with Paul in the gospel. They supported his ministry. They kept up with him. They kept in communication with him in order to help to see that the ministry of the gospel would go forth. And that brought Paul great joy. As we'll see in our text, when other churches did not support him in that way, this church did. And that was an encouragement to him. He mentions also others throughout the letter who labored with him side by side in the ministry of the gospel. His son in the faith, Timothy, Epaphroditus, who was a representative of Philippi, Euodia and Syntyche, the two women that he calls out in chapter 4 who were helpers and laborers in the gospel. The true companion of which Paul references also in chapter 4, also a brother by the name of Clement. 
These were his co-laborers, fellow workers who partnered with him in gospel ministry. Moreover, there's a partnership between members of the church. This partnership Paul alludes to when he encourages them to, with one mind, strive side by side for the faith of the gospel in chapter 1. That is what the church of Jesus Christ is called to. It's called to a ministry of the gospel, to make disciples of all nations. That is our mission. People often ask the pastor, what is your vision for the church? My vision for the church is what the Bible says, that we be disciple makers of the nations, that the gospel go forth from this church, first to Catonsville Baptist Church, and as we have the opportunity, even to the ends of the earth, that we stay true to his word in that. There's a a fellowship that we have, a partnership with one another in the gospel. We also see the grace of God at work in the lives of believers through prayer, through, through persecution, I'm sorry. Paul speaks of his eagerness to be with Christ as a result of the persecution he endured when he says to live is Christ and to die is gain. He says, I've been through a lot, and what all of that has taught me is that I really want to be with Jesus. In other words, the persecution that he endured, the difficulty that he endured, only served to help him long to be with Jesus more. He says, that's what I want to do. I just want to be with Jesus. And while I'm here, I want to live for Jesus. I want to do his work in the world. And he commends the believers at Philippi to the same attitude. He says in chapter 1, verse 28, It has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. He said, having the same conflict that you saw and heard in me. Oh, we see God's grace at work in the lives of believers through prayer, partnership, persecution, also through his promises. And there are a number of promises that we have uh, meditated on throughout this text already. I'll just rattle off a few, just thinking through the content of the book of Philippians. There are a number of, a number of different verses in, in the book of Philippians that are good to memorize. If you're looking for something to memorize, something to meditate on, my girls always love when I point out that um, the idea of meditating is like a cow chewing cud. You know how a cow will, will eat grass and they'll chew on it and uh, they you know, kind of let it go down into their stomach and then from time to time they'll let it come back up because they need to chew on it to process it a little bit more. That's what the idea of meditation is. You take something into your mind, into your heart, and you think about it. You noodle it around for a while. And maybe you, know, you kind of swallow it and you, you, you put it down for a little bit, but then you bring it back up and think on it a little bit more. That's what meditating on the word of God is. That's what Christian meditation is. It's not where you empty your mind and you become a mindless drone. That's just nonsense. Christian meditation, meditation for the believer, is thinking on the word of God. There are a number of truths in here that I'll call out. Chapter 1, verse 6, he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ. And if you don't get all of these, you can just listen to the audio later. Chapter 1, verse 21, again, to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Chapter 1, verse 29, it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. And what I love about that one is that it reminds us that suffering is a part of the Christian life. It's not all a bed of roses. Sometimes suffering happens. That's reality. Chapter 2, verse 5, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. We have the mind of Christ, and we're commanded to think like Christ. In that passage, he's talking about the humility of Christ. Chapter 2, verse 9, God highly exalted him, Jesus, 
and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's just a good, good reminder of what this whole human experience, experiment is all about. All of creation, all of what God has been doing among the world of men has, is going to this, is leading to this one day. When every knee bows and every tongue confesses that Jesus is Lord. Chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And that's beautiful for so many reasons. We have a responsibility, but we also see God's sovereignty. God is at work in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So you work out your salvation. Chapter 3, verse 8, indeed, I count all things lost because of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. And he goes on from there, I don't want to have a righteousness of my own, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. That's what righteousness is. It is from God. It is that which comes from God, and it depends on faith. We trust and we believe And God credits our faith as righteousness. Chapter 3, verse 14, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ. Chapter 3, verse 20, our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Chapter 4, verse 4, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. And Paul talks about joy many times throughout this letter. Chapter 4, verse 6, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, With thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Chapter 4, verse 8, I'll summarize. Whatever is true, think about these things. Chapter 4, verse 9, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. Chapter 4, verse 13, which we'll get to, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Chapter 4, verse 19, and my God will supply all your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. So many truths to meditate on. As we meditate on those truths, the grace of God works in our hearts. That's why we ought to hide God's word in our hearts. All of these means of grace have been given to the Lord for that purpose, to help his people in their time of need, to increase their joy. All of these means of grace are connected to Christ and his people, the church. If you're looking to find grace, you will not find it outside of what God is doing in the church. That's the message of Christianity. God is not dead. God is not impotent. God is at work in the world today. He is at work building his church. He is dispensing his grace through his church, through the means he has given to his church, through his word, through the gospel, among his people. Well, as we turn to the final section in Philippians this morning, we learn that the Lord also shows his grace to his people through his faithfulness to provide in all circumstances. And here we're going to be looking at Philippians chapter 4, verses 10 through 23. A brief outline for that section. We'll see that the Lord shows his faithfulness through trials in, chapter t- in verses 10 through 13. The Lord shows his faithfulness through the gifts of others in 14 through 18. The Lord shows his faithfulness through example in chapter 4, verse 19. And Paul goes from verse 19 into a doxology, a word of praise to the Lord in verse 20, and then in verses 21 through 23, Paul's concluding words were reminded that the Lord shows his faithfulness through the support of others. Let's read that section together in verses 10 through 23, 
and then we'll work through to conclude our study in this letter. Philippians chapter 4, verse 10. I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent help from my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your account. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Be with your spirit. Let's pray. Father, thank you once again for your word, for your truth. We pray that you would sanctify us by your truth this morning. Open our eyes that we may behold wonderful things from your word. Let the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts collectively be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, you are our rock and our redeemer. In Christ's name, amen. God is faithful. There are a myriad of troubles that may befall us throughout our lives, a myriad of difficulties, a myriad of trials. But for the believer, for the citizen of heaven, there will always be one constant. God is faithful. Of those who could complain about difficulties, Paul would rank pretty high. To the church at Corinth, Paul often had to defend his apostleship against a similar group that tormented the Philippians. The opponents at Corinth often attempted to elevate themselves above Paul, claiming superiority of pedigree and experience. This was Paul's response. This is in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. He says, are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they offspring of Abraham? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I am a better one. I am talking like a madman. With far greater labors, far more imprisonments, With countless beatings, often near death, five times I received from the hand of the Jews forty lashes, less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And apart from the other things, there is a daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Who is weak and I am not weak? Who is made to fall and I am not indignant? If I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weaknesses. The God and Father of the Lord Jesus, he who is blessed forever, knows that I am not lying. At Damascus, the governor under King Aretas was guarding the city of Damascus in order to seize me. But I was let down in a basket through a window in the wall and escaped his hands. 
Beyond that, Paul went on in the next section to mention a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan sent to torment him, specifically allowed by God to keep him humble. He said he prayed three times that God would remove it. But God said, no, my grace is sufficient for you. My grace, my strength is perfected in weakness. In other words, those who claim to be apostles, those who claim to be spiritual giants who we should listen to, have they suffered for Christ or is theirs a life of comfort? Paul will say elsewhere, all who desire to live godly in Christ will suffer persecution. Paul, for his part, would have had a great reason to complain. Perhaps some would argue he would have even have a reason to give up, but he didn't. He kept pressing forward. He kept his eye on the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ. And he was persistent precisely because he knew that his God is faithful. At the end of the letter... This is the essential message that he's leaving to his dear church. Again, this dear church has supported Paul frequently, who themselves also suffered greatly by means of persecution they endured for the cause of Christ as well as their own poverty. Paul refers to their poverty in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. They didn't have a great deal of resources, but they had great faith, and so they continued to give. Again, as we conclude this letter, Paul is trying to encourage them in the faithfulness of God and to affirm them for their faith in giving in spite of the difficulties they endured. Well, again, our first point in verses 10 through 13 is that God shows his faithfulness through our trials. God shows his faithfulness through our trials. Look again at verses 10 through 13. I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at length you've revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Well, we know that he's talking about a gift that he received from the church. Again, I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at length you've revived your concern for me. Verse 18, he says, I've received full payment and more. I'm well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts that you sent. This whole section he's, he's using, he's devoting to essentially affirming them and thanking them for the gift that they sent. We discussed this throughout the letter, but Epaphroditus was sent to Paul with this gift from the church at Philippi in order to help support his ministry. This was one of many gifts that they'd sent to Paul. Paul says, this gift has brought me joy. Truly, we began and end the letter in the same note. He began speaking of his prayer for them in chapter chapter 1. He prays for them with joy, again, in light of his partnership. And again, at the close of this letter, he's returning to this concept, this idea of the joy that he has from their partnership in ministry. We have no idea how much of an encouragement it is to gospel workers when we support them in ministry. This is why we give to the cooperative program of the SBC, by the way. This is really the whole reason why we're a part of the SBC. It's for us not to have a denomination to provide us with a hierarchical structure of leadership where the committee leads all the churches in the SBC. That's not how it works in the SBC. There's no hierarchy within the denomination. We're all independent Baptist churches but we are a part of the SBC because we're able to cooperate together to see that the gospel goes forth to the nations. It's a cooperative. We provide resources, and together we pool our resources together to see that worldwide missions and church planning stateside happens. We get to participate in supporting 
believers and their families who take the gospel of Jesus Christ around the world. All of us cannot go. We cannot, as a church, even support one family on the mission field. We don't have the ability to do that. But we can join together with other churches and cooperate with them in sending others out into the world with the gospel. Well, here Paul rejoices over the partnership that he has with this dear church, and he knows how difficult it's been for them. He says, you were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. We don't know what caused this lack of opportunity or for how long. Again, either it was a reference to the poverty that they sometimes were struck with. They simply could not send funds to Paul, or else maybe there was some other circumstance hindering them from sending. Regardless, Paul acknowledges their concern for him and rejoices and their concern and their kindness. And in case there were any who felt discouraged by the fact that they could not express their concern for him monetarily during that time period when they lacked opportunity, Paul goes on to affirm the faithfulness of God. Look again. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. Again, in the context, this is financial. <clears throat> These are financial concerns. The Lord at times shows his faithfulness, in other words, not by providing in the ways that we expect or in the ways that we want, but sometimes from withholding and through the difficulty of trial. There are some things that we cannot, in fact, learn from school, from a textbook, or from a conversation, but we can only learn through experience. That's Paul's point here. To the Philippians, he says, you know what? I know you wanted to give to support my ministry, but were unable to. In spite of that, I did not suffer because I've learned some things in life. God in his faithfulness has seen to it that I would not always have what I want in life, but that there would be sometimes when I had to struggle, sometimes when I had to suffer. And through that struggle and that suffering, he has taught me to be content. He says, in whatever situation, really, I've learned to be content. To be content is to be independent, self-sufficient, or satisfied. I like the idea of that last term. I think that's Paul's point here. He says that I've learned to be satisfied in whatever situation I am. This is probably more akin to being at peace with your circumstances, not feeling that insatiable desire for more or the sting of ingratitude or discontent. The reality is that contentment is something that we have to learn. That's what Paul says. I have learned in whatever situation to be content. I know how to be brought low. I know how to be abound. I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger. He repeats, I have learned twice in these verses. I have learned and now I know. This is not something that was innate to him as an apostle or as a, as a preacher. It's not something that came natural. We naturally crave something more or new or different. Again, the grass is always greener, right? We have that, uh, that proverb among us. Contentment is not built into our fallen genes. It is something that we must learn. Moreover, we learn it the same way, again, that Paul learned it through the ebb and flow of life. In other words, contentment is not something that we only need when we lack something. We tend to think about it that way. When I go without something, I need to learn to be content. But no, Paul says, I need to be content whether I have a lot or a little. Whatever the situation is, in every circumstance, I need to learn to be content. The problem with having little is obvious. We're tempted to grumble about what we don't have and to lust for it. In those times, we tend to think that if we had more, we would be better off. The desire for more, the expectation that we ought to have more, leads to depression, discouragement, desperation, and all sorts of foolish choices. We hear of someone who's robbed or stolen, some, something that they didn't have but felt like they needed, and we hear those words often. They were desperate. 
They were depressed or discouraged, and so they went out and they did this thing. We know in reality that we will not find contentment by wallowing in contemplation of what we don't have, and yet we still try. Little do we realize that the problem with having much is equally a potential for disaster. We can also be tempted to grumble about what we need more of, and we can be proud about what we do have, thinking that we deserve it. We look down upon others. We disdain them. We assume that what we have in life should have been given to us, not to mention many other snares and traps that the wealthy fall into. It's been proven time and time again that some of the most most successful and wealthy people are often the most unhappy. Think about people like Robin Williams, for example, a comedian, an actor, wealthy, but also deeply depressed and end up taking his own life. One psychologist wrote of the troubles of the wealthy. He began to um, have sessions with someone who was very wealthy, and then he started to get referrals to other people who were very wealthy. And he said, I, I started to hear patterns among them all. He says this, what would it be like if you couldn't trust those close to you? Or if you looked at any new person in, of the, in your life with deep suspicion? I hear this from my clients all the time. What do they want from me? Or how are they going to manipulate me? They're probably only friends with me because of my money. He says there are struggles they have with purpose, the depression that sets in when you feel like you have no reason to get out of bed. You struggle with lack of meaning and ambition. For those who are wealthy with children, they indulge their children so that, quote, they never have to suffer the way I suffered. And he comments that ultimately they prevent their children from experiencing the very things that made them successful, sacrifice, hard work, overcoming failure, developing resilience. And it goes on from there. And these are all from a secular point of view, but there are great observations about life. Bottom line is we won't find contentment either by meditating on the things that we don't have or by having all the abundance that we think we need. We have to learn contentment. But how do we do that? How can you be, learn to be satisfied in whatever circumstance you're in? How can you be satisfied with plenty and want? I think the point that the Holy Spirit makes in this text is that the believer, the citizen of heaven, can be satisfied in whatever situation they find themselves in because of verse 13. Paul says there, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Now, people take this verse out of context all the time. I'm sure you guys have heard it, right? You've, you've seen the football player or the athlete quoting this verse, talking about their great accomplishments, that they can do all things through Christ. That really has nothing to do with this verse. Paul's point is that God is at work in us. He says earlier, again, God is at work in us both to will and to work for his good pleasure. He says, the one who began a good work will be faithful to complete it. And really, that's the truth that we have to meditate on here. Whether we have a lot or a little in life, God is at work in us. He's working through us. Through the Holy Spirit, he is working in us both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So we can do all things through Christ. We can learn to be satisfied in any and every circumstance because of him who strengthens us, because Christ is at work in us, because he is with us. I like this comment by one author. He says, contrary to the cliche that experience is the best teacher, contentment is not learned merely by experience in all circumstances of life, but by being in Christ in any and every situation. 
whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or want, Paul has learned the secret of being content because he's learned to keep his focus on his relationship with Christ, not on the fluctuating circumstances of life. This gets at the heart of what Paul means when he says he's learned. He has a teacher. That teacher is clearly the Lord who's allowed these circumstances. And we can imagine the lessons that Paul learned through the process. When you have plenty, you're reminded that it is of the Lord. We're commanded to give thanks in everything precisely because every good thing comes from above. And when we give thanks, particularly in those times of plenty, we're reminded that we didn't gain it on our own, but that it was from the hand of our good God. When we have little, we're reminded that this too is of the Lord. Knowing that it is of the Lord does not take away the physical pain of going hungry, for example, or being without something that you desire. However, knowing these things is a reminder that the Lord is sovereign over all our affairs, that he grants us to suffer for his sake, that the experience of his people throughout the ages is that of suffering. Again, Paul says in this letter, I have suffered the loss of all things. And he says of Christ himself that he suffered loss, that he emptied himself of the glories above to come down into human flesh, that he suffered being obedient to the point of death and death on a cross. Suffering and difficulty going without is a part of the Christian experience. And that's okay because the Lord is with us throughout it all. Paul says, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Throughout the joys and the sorrows, throughout the difficulties that he endured, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. This is true when it comes to financial issues, but also true with regard to any other issues we face in life, right? There will be ups and downs. There will be fluctuation. We will have those different seasons in our relationships with each other, those close relationships that we have, husbands and wives, parents and children, brothers and sisters. We will have ups and downs in those relationships, but we can learn to be satisfied in the midst of those things when we keep our focus not on what we think we don't have or or what we deserve, but on Christ. We'll have seasons of life when we'll be at our healthiest and seasons of life when we'll fall ill. And if the Lord tarries, we'll eventually come to the end of our life. Life is full of those ebbs and flows. But we can learn to be content regardless if we keep our eyes on Christ and rely on his strength. Satisfaction, contentment always comes from him. Paul was confident in these truths. He had learned these truths over the course of his Christian life. Throughout the tumult of trials he endured, throughout the suffering, again, throughout the sorrows, also throughout the joys and triumphs. Therefore, he was not concerned that the church at Philippi couldn't support him during those long periods, and he tried to encourage them with this truth. He had learned to be content, knowing that sometimes the Lord shows his faithfulness even through our trials. Point number two, the Lord shows his faithfulness through the gifts of others. That's in verses 14 through 18. Yet it was kind of you to share in my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your account. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. 
He says it was their kindness. It was kind of you to share my trouble. It was from kindness, again from love, that the Philippians reached out to help Paul. They did not give out of a forced sense of obligation. He's affirming them in their display of kindness and giving. Conversely, verse 14, you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving, except you only. Paul says, you all showed me kindness. In the beginning of the gospel, it's not literally in the beginning of the gospel, but rather in the beginning of his ministry in that region. He says, we have to understand that he's not calling other churches unkind here, but rather emphasizing the kindness of the Philippians. No church entered into partnership with me except you only. You guys were the only ones. The other churches may have had their reasons for not partnering with Paul in that way, but the fact is that they didn't, but the Philippians did. Earlier, I referenced Paul's comments to the church at Corinth and speaking of the churches of Macedonia in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Of those churches, Philippi not only gave to support Paul's ministry, but they also gave for the poor in Jerusalem. And Paul calls them out, the churches in Macedonia, he calls them out specifically as an example for other churches. It was their kindness, but also it was ultimately a service to the Lord. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your account. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a service acceptable and pleasing to God. He makes a similar comment here to the one earlier. Earlier, not that I speak from want. Here, not that I seek the gift. His point is to reaffirm that he's not in it for the money. Again, the early church was frequently hounded by charlatans who were seeking monetary gain. Paul wants to make sure that they understood that this was not him. It's not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. And what does that mean? It means that their gift was ultimately in service to the Lord. The Lord saw their gift to Paul as an offering in service to him. That's what he says in the next verse. He calls it a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. Giving to support gospel ministry is an act of faith and service to the Lord. Anytime you give as a Christian, it ought to be to the Lord for his glory in support of his work and support of gospel ministry. We don't give to get a blessing from the Lord, as some say. We don't give in order to receive back from the Lord. We give freely, cheerfully, with kindness in our hearts in order to support gospel ministry for the Lord's sake. That is where your resources ought to be directed. As members of a local church, you start there because that's where you are. And because you can see the gospel ministry at work. When you give to the gospel ministry of Catonsville Baptist Church, for example, you give to support the gospel ministry, the work of God here at Catonsville. You're not giving to me. You're not giving to other staff. You're not giving because you heard a good sermon. You're not withholding your money, hopefully, because you heard a bad sermon. Because there may be some of those. You're not giving because we played your favorite song or because we do your favorite outreach or don't do your favorite outreach. You're giving to support to the Lord, to support gospel ministry here at Catonsville and abroad as we participate in the SBC cooperative program. And if you have additional to give beyond that, you're certainly free to. And it's clear that that's what the congregation was doing here. They gave beyond their means to also support the ministry of Paul as he continued to spread the gospel in different regions. But your giving is to the Lord. When that is the intent, the Lord sees that gift as an offering to him, a sacrifice to him. The Lord is always the audience in our giving. Matthew 6, 3 and 4. When you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. 2 Corinthians 9 is a similar principle. 
He says there, the point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Whenever we give, we give ultimately to the Lord for his good pleasure as an offering, a sacrifice to him. That is why our giving takes place during the service, because it's part of worship. And back to our text, when you give, whether to the local church or to a missionary, we give in service to the Lord. And as you give, Paul says, fruit increases to your account. And that can be, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 9, where he talks there about an increase of seed to continue to sow. It can be greater faith, that increase of the fruit of righteousness that Paul alludes to in chapter 1 of Philippians, or it could simply be joy. Joy in knowing that even if you cannot directly participate in gospel ministry, that as you give, you are able to participate in gospel ministry through your giving. Right now, today, the 3,530 field personnel out in the world sent out through the IMB are sent out through the cooperative program of which we are a part. We give, we could not support 3,530 people and send them out onto the mission field to take the gospel to the nations. But we can participate in that work through our giving. That's the Lord's work. Again, back to the text. Paul says, I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gift you sent. Yes, this is your kindness, your faith, but it's also the Lord's faithfulness to provide abundantly for me. I am well supplied. Remember, Paul is still sitting in prison. There were no luxury prisons in his day, no luxury suites, especially not for believers. He's not talking about sitting in the Ritz. But he was well supplied. And in case there was any doubt, he made clear in the letter that he had indeed received full payment. Remember, this money was sent to Paul by Epaphroditus, by means of Epaphroditus. He probably had a number of other folks traveling with him. But Paul wanted to make sure that they understood that he had received a full accounting of all that was sent. To make sure that it was clear that everything was above board. The Lord is faithful. Paul, ever the teacher at the close of this letter, while giving an affirmation of thanks for their gift, also sought to teach them of the faithfulness of God. God's faithfulness doesn't always look the way you expect. Sometimes he's faithful to our trials. He allows us to experience the ebb and flow of life so that we may learn to be content and in him in spite of it. And his faithfulness, he doesn't always give us everything we want, but at times forces us to learn to wait on him. But there are other times when the Lord provides, and he does so through other people. As his people obey his commands to give, to be generous through their faithfulness, he's faithful to those in need. The third point I think should be clear by now. The Lord shows his faithfulness through his example in the lives of others. Paul drives home this point in verse 19. Again, and my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. He says, my God will supply the same God of whom he spoke earlier, who taught him to be content. My God, the same God who through their kindness amply provided for Paul's needs. My God will supply every need of yours. Yes, you, will, you do have needs. I know that you've not given out of abundance, but out of your poverty. And yet God is faithful. Just as he's been faithful to provide for me, even through you, he'll be faithful to provide for you as well. Again, 2 Corinthians 9. 
And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. As it is written, he distributed freely. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. That's 2 Corinthians chapter 9. And there is here, Paul is trying to affirm and encourage the brothers and sisters in Christ that as they give, God will be faithful to provide for you as well. And back to our text. Again, he supplies according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Yes, God is faithful to provide for us today, but ultimately the measure of the wealth of God is not in physical land, though he owns it all. It is not in the possession of gold coins, but rather the measure of the wealth of God is in his riches in glory. All of these will be ours. These belong to us, those of us who are in Christ Jesus, those who are citizens of heaven. The riches of the glory of God are ours in Christ. One author commented that the text says according to, not of. If it said of, then it would be like a millionaire giving you of his wealth, a check for $100, something like that. But this is according to, this would be like a millionaire giving you a blank check and saying you can write this check for anything up unto or according to my wealth. So we're given wealth. We will be supplied according to the riches of the glory of God in Christ Jesus. This is Psalm 23. Yes, the Lord is our shepherd. Yes, he cares for us as a shepherd and seeks to provide for all of our needs daily. But the greatest gift is not just his shepherdly care, but as the text moves forward in Psalm 23, the greatest gift is his care for us as our heavenly host. When we're allowed to sit down at his table, when he fills our cup to overflowing, the same home that he invites us into, that he says, you will dwell here with me forever. And we are taken care of according to his wealth. And we live with him and dwell with him forever. The Lord shows his faithfulness through the example of others. That is what Paul is getting at here. Just as God has been faithful to me, so he will be faithful to provide for you. This is why it's so important that we talk to each other throughout the week, not just on Sundays. Some of you have stories of the faithfulness of God that you could be sharing with some of us who are coming after you. We can learn from your example. As we hear the faithfulness of God in your lives, we can be encouraged to press on in the faith. I've told you all many times before of our mentors in the faith. Some of the richest times of fellowship that we have with them were simply listening to them talk about their lives and how God had been faithful. Listening to them talk about the good times, listening to them talk about the bad times, the hard times, the difficult times. But listening to them and hearing them talk about trusting the Lord in spite of all of it, trusting the Lord through all of it. And we can do that with and for one another right here in the body of Christ. And we ought to. Those of you who have experienced the goodness of God in your life, the faithfulness of God in your life, don't sit on that. Tell someone about it. Talk to your neighbor about it. Encourage someone else with it. Let the Lord use you in that way. With this thought, Paul breaks out into doxology in verse 20. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. To our God who is faithful, who has been faithful to provide, who has 
who will be faithful still to him, to our God, to the one who saved us through his gospel, to the one who set us apart according to his gospel, to the one who's made us citizens of his heaven, to the one who provides for us according to his riches, to him be glory forever and ever. Amen. And finally, the Lord shows his faithfulness through the support of other believers, thinking more broadly about that truth. Verses 21 through 23, as Paul concludes here, greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Paul's final greeting can be easily dismissed as unimportant, but the reality is that his greeting signifies something beautiful about the church of Jesus Christ. Greet every saint. The brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you. There's a commonality, a brotherhood in the body of Christ that is unmistakable, unquenchable, and irreplaceable. So much so that the saints and brothers from other local churches and regions throughout the world can give and send greetings, can consider and pray for one another, can ultimately have providential meetings with each other, and legitimately live like brothers regardless of how long they've known each other. I can attest to this. I've been on a number of mission trips. The first two mission trips that I went on, I knew absolutely no one who I was on a team with. The first one was to Trinidad and Tobago. The second one was to Turkey, of all places. I'd never been out of the country before either of those trips. But both of those trips, I went on a team with people I knew nothing about. And yet after, I don't know, one or two days, and I'm an introvert, so usually I'm, you know, like off in a corner somewhere just trying to hide out. But after one or two days, we were all laughing, sitting around, talking like we'd been friends for years. Because we all had a com- have a common Lord. And we didn't all look like each other. And we certainly weren't in a place where we looked like everyone else who was there. But it was okay. Because we had a common faith. We served a common Lord. We were there for the same purpose. We had the same spirit dwelling within us. We had the same word as our weapon. And we went forth. And God blessed tremendously through that. And listen, that's the way it is for all of us in the body of Christ. That's why we ought to avail ourselves of the blessing that we have with one another. And God has given us something beautiful in the body of Christ. He's given us something beautiful with one another. It's utterly irreplaceable. That's why we gather. That's why as we continue to gather, we should be seeking to serve one another, to love one another. Because the grace of God is at work in us, not just for ourselves, but for one another. We don't come here for ourselves. We come here for the Lord and for one another. As we come with that attitude, as we serve with that attitude, as we pray for one another, as we serve together in gospel preaching ministries with that attitude, the grace of the Lord abides with our spirit. Again, God is faithful. Sometimes he shows his faithfulness in what he teaches us through trials. Sometimes he shows his faithfulness through the gifts of others. Sometimes he shows his faithfulness through the example and exhortation of others. Always he shows his faithfulness through our care and support of each other. God is faithful. May he grant that we be faithful to him and to one another for his grace to abound among us for his glory. Father, we thank you again for today. Thank you for your word, which is true, your word, which sanctifies us. Thank you for your grace that is so amazing, that is so multifaceted, that works in so many different ways, through so many different means. Thank you for your goodness in Christ to us and for the gift that you've given us of one another. 
Thank you for being faithful. Help us to be faithful to you and to your word. We pray this in Christ's blessed name. Amen.